Good morning. Good to see each one of you. Good to be together. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We've been away from our preaching through this book. We're coming back, moving into the next significant section of the book of Genesis. The Marvel Universe and the movies about it are quite a cultural phenomenon. We have these terrible, fearful villains like Thanos, and we have our, our great heroes like Thor and Iron Man who are saving the universe. And as the storyline of these movies has progressed, the the writers keep trying to make the storyline more and more extravagant, bigger and bigger, to the point, does anyone really understand what's going on anymore? My kids try to tell me they know what's happening, explain it. I don't think anyone really does. We're drawn to these stories because uh, our lives feel small, uh, life so often for us, is just a slog. So we're drawn to, to hear and think about a big story that ends well. We might even on the, the drive home, you know, fantasize a little bit of what if we were one of those characters. Yeah, there, there is a reality. There is an even bigger storyline than anything the Marvel writers could put into a movie, and believer, you are part of that storyline. God created this world and us in his image. He made the world good and placed us in a perfect garden that life would be joy and the knowing of him. But Satan tempted Adam and Eve, drawing them to, to want to make themselves like God, and they, they listened and they followed and rebelled. And because of that, corruption came into humanity, into the world, and death has reigned ever since. God's storyline promises that he will perfect his creation. God will have his garden. God will have his people whole, living in it, in the joy of uninterrupted relationship with him. The, the main point we have in our message today is that God's storyline cannot fail. And the great news believer for us is, in Christ, we're part of that storyline. God promised a deliverer. As soon as sin entered the world, God immediately responded with a promise that coming from Eve's line would be one who would crush the reign of Satan. And yet throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis, as we've been 
going through God's description of our beginnings, we have seen humanity implode every grace that God has given. But now in chapter 12, we, we have the revealing of what is a significant advancement in God's storyline to bring salvation to his people. Uh, this chapter is one of the most significant chapters of all of Scripture. The, the rest of Scripture keeps coming back to what begins here in chapter 12. So join me as we read the first nine verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed for Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go into the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Our Heavenly Father, as we encounter your word to us, we ask for clarity, for strengthening of heart, for what you want us to see, how you want us to live, where you want us to be encouraged, how you want to bring change. We ask that you would work for all of these purposes in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In verse 1, this advancement of God's storyline in a significant way uh, begins with our being introduced to a man named Abram who is called by God. The Genesis story, Genesis meaning beginnings, now becomes the story that is narrowed in to focus on this man, Abram, who will become Abraham and his progeny. What, what happens with his descendants? Abram is singled out of all the people on earth to be an instrument for God fulfilling his promise to deliver. To do this, God tells Abram that he must leave what he knows. He has to leave the people that are his security. We don't know what his plans were, but he has to leave them as well. 
a land he, he doesn't know where it is, God will lead him away from family, away from home. But God equips Abram as he, he looks at doing this with seven extraordinary promises. In verses 2 and 3, he promises, I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who misuse you. And then climactically at the end, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now that is an extraordinary promise. All the nations and people groups throughout the world will find blessing through this man, Abram, and his descendants. The theme of blessing is repeated five times in these verses. It is clearly meant to, to be an, an attention grabber for us. God is speaking about bringing blessing into the world. It, it's echoes of how the book of Genesis began, where God created the earth, created humanity, put them in the garden, and gave blessing upon them. Sin had played havoc with the blessings of God, and here he is repeating, he means to bring blessing to his people. The rest of Genesis will that reveal, God present, a series of challenges that keep coming against Abram and his family and their ability to fulfill the, the promises that God has given. Now, when we, we read these verses, it looks as though that Abram just immediately listened to God, obeyed God, and moved forward. Uh, we know it wasn't quite that immediate or direct or faithful. Uh, turn back the end of chapter 11, verse 31. We find out that uh, he, he didn't fully leave his kindred. He didn't fully leave his father's house. He didn't fully go to the place that God had told him. Uh, verse 31, Terah, who is the father of Abraham, took Abraham his son and Lot, the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, what would later become Babylon, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the language we have in verse five, is that they were there for quite some time because they had acquired goods and servants. They had built a life there. The call, we see, is to Abram. And yet, we see in verse 31 where it starts describing them moving that it seems Abram's father actually took the lead. He didn't leave his father's house as he went with his father, and 
grabbed a bunch of other relatives that went with them together. And they, they didn't go all the way to Canaan. They, they stopped short. They, they traveled quite a distance, but they stopped well short. And they remained there for an untold period of time, but most likely it was years. But when Abram's father dies, the end of chapter 11, it appears now, as chapter 12 begins, that God renews his call to Abram. And now Abram leaves and sets himself to go where God had told him to go. So Abram's faithfulness eventually gains momentum. Verse 5, he took his wife, he took his nephew Lot and their possessions that they had gathered, the people they had acquired. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Morah. And there, at that time, Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord. The Lord appeared to him, and from there he moved to the hill country of Bethel. And then he built an altar there, and he called on the name of the Lord there. And then it says he kept journeying on and going into the Negev. Now, this was a monumental trip. Uh, the distance from Ur to Haran, where they first stopped, is... 650 miles as the crow flies. So that would be a straight line. They certainly didn't go in a straight line as the crow flies. There were, could have been hundreds of extra miles. They're following the river and, and uh, the travel routes of trade. Who knows how long it, it takes to go 650 miles on foot or in a cart. And then they're Haran, so they are Think of it as a triangle from where they start in Ur. They go to Haran, which is 650 miles going northeast. And then when they go to Canaan, now they're going southeast another 450 miles. They couldn't go straight across because you have that vast Arabian desert. So they travel 1,100 miles if it was straight lines. It was a vast, overwhelming trip, and they have made it. They are there. Not only do they finally arrive, the Lord appears to them. We don't know what that was, but it says the Lord appeared to Abram. He confirmed, yes, this is the place, the land I told you, this is what I will give to you. Abram then, he he makes a, an altar there, a symbol of, I will worship the Lord. And it's interesting that we're told here, uh, he goes to the land and comes to the Oak of Morah. Now, you've gone well over a thousand miles, and, and there's an oak tree All of a sudden, oh, we're here. Yeah, there's the oak tree. Kind of, what in the world? Uh, 
But we find this particular oak tree uh, is, is referred to in the next chapter and numbers of times over centuries in, in the life of the people of Israel. This location and tree is mentioned and uh, it, it would appear that this was most likely uh, a central place of Canaanite worship, that there were uh, idols here and this was a place where they came to worship. And so to, to speak of it, and we have some indication as we go further through Joshua and Judges of that, the fact that after all this time and space that there Abram would build an altar to the Lord seems to be that indication of we will not follow the way of the world. We will worship the Lord God here. It was a statement of belonging to land and of who we will worship, which will be much different from the world around us. Challenges are lurking. Verse 6, kind of at the end of the paragraph, Canaanites were in the land. And if you know Scripture, you know that is a loaded statement. There will be all sorts of trouble and opposition, all sorts of idolatry because of that reality. But over time, Abram travels through the whole land that God promised. Shechem is in the north. Bethel's kind of central. The Negev is the southernmost part of what would eventually become Judea. So Abraham is traveling over all the land that God had promised. And then, after all these steps, which seem to be finally, they're there and settled, and then the wheels fall off. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, she, she was 65 when they left Haran. So this is probably a few years later. She very easily could have been 70. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to the Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
if we're to kind of describe this in modern cultural terms, we would understand you know, what's happening with Abram doing so well and then everything, just the wheels come off. Think of it as the eagle's season. <laughs> kind of like that. You're doing really well. And then all of a sudden, it just goes bad and doesn't stop. That's kind of what's happened with Abram. And I bring that up just to help you have a picture that you might have some feeling for what's going on. Abram leaves the land, which is central to the promise and will be a theme that runs throughout the rest of the Bible, the significance of the land. Now, famine is a real problem. He left because of a famine. I mean, we understand, was he justified in leaving? Was that all right before God? It, it was a famine. We don't know. The, the Bible doesn't, with this, uh, describe whether or not he is being faithful or faithless. We do know it was a challenge and an obstacle and a problem. We know he, he leaves. But his actions after he leaves are clearly shameful. He tells his wife, I'm afraid of what they'll do to get you from me, so let's pretend you're my sister, and then they'll treat me well. And you have to wonder They've been traveling, remember, hundreds and hundreds of, by the time they are down to Egypt, it is over 2,000 miles over years. They've gone through countless nations, cities, and now all of a sudden, Abram is afraid of what will happen. We do know in that culture, as a brother, that Abram becomes the bride price negotiator for her to become someone's wife. We'll see that later on with Jacob and Laban. We do know he receives significant wealth. That's described in, in verse 16 lists all sorts of animals that were given to him in abundance. What was going on in motivation? Uh, we don't fully know, but this, this is clear. He's no longer in the land God promised. How do you have descendants, as the promise describes, when you've given your wife away? I don't think Pharaoh's thinking of sharing. And so how, how, do the, how does a single promise go forward based upon Abram's actions? But the storyline is God's storyline. God brings Abram into it, 
and he uses Abram in a significant way, but it is God's storyline, and he will maintain it. He will fulfill it. It appears that Pharaoh had more integrity about marriage than Abram did. When Pharaoh finds out, he is disturbed. How did you let me get in this position? How did you lie about it? All this concern of what the Egyptians will do, and they had more integrity than Abram did. God gets Pharaoh's attention through plagues. Remind you of anything? And Pharaoh tells Abram, go. Remind you of anything? Not only of verse 1. He, he actually becomes God's voice in there. He, Pharaoh's fulfilling what God wants. And this pattern will be repeated. Go to Egypt because of famine. Leave through plagues, and when you leave, you take the wealth of Egypt with you. God will, will do this again in a bigger way. God saves Abram from his circumstances and from himself. Saves Abram from his failures, saves him from his lack of faith, saves him from his sin. Now, there will be consequences because we can read over and think, he does all this and he leaves wealthy? Like, yeah, I guess I shouldn't have done it, but it turned out pretty good. God does carry him through. God does protect him, but there are always consequences. Uh, there will be big consequences from his wife, Sarah's Egyptian servant. She's going to come up in this story pretty quick. A lot of trouble there. And the very next chapter, we find trouble brewing just because Abram has so much. It creates difficulty with his nephew, Lot. There will be circumstance. There will be consequences, but it is God's storyline. So how is the eternal storyline advanced through Abram? More and more of it will unfold, but the promises given to Abram lead to that promised deliverer. For this is how the New Testament begins. The new covenant of God to save us the very first words given to us, introducing the new covenant. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abram, who will become Abraham, is the one God has selected, pulled out, called and through him and through the promises God gave him, God will bring to us the Savior, God in flesh himself. The great hero 
of God's storyline, his, his son Jesus. And Jesus is promised through the line of Abram. And believer, we live in this storyline. This is not an ancient history lesson. This is not a story of the Bible that we go over and learn, well, don't do that. You better do this. This is God's storyline from creation until the fulfillment of all promise when we're with him forever. And we are in the middle of this. We have been caught up in it and our lives are fully embedded in God's storyline. So for the rest of our time, let me give a few meaningful encouragements to be in God's storyline. The first is to recognize then that one, God is always the main character of all storylines. God is the main character. Abram is not. Pharaoh is not. Abram was, he was plucked out of obscurity. It actually is, is very abrupt when we see all of this taking place to this guy Abram. Like, who is he? Where did he come from? Why is he such a big deal now? And there's no rationale behind it that we can see. A man hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and we're told in Joshua chapter 24, it's not because Abram and his family were these wonderful, godly people persevering in a hard place. We're told Abram's family, they were all pagans. It said they served other gods, as you did. Serving the God of your own desires, and God stopped that. And he plucked you out and caused you to know him. And that's what he does with Abram. He does what happened to all who come to know Christ. For no reason that can be shown of our life or of our heart, God suddenly says, I will save that one. And so we see God is the main character. And even when the great Pharaoh enters the picture, he's a side character. Every promise about Abram's future and our future is based on God saying what he will do. That's the language of all the promises. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. Every aspect of the promise is about what God will do. It, we don't have to be concerned, how's Abram going to carry this? It's what will God do? That is what is before us. That's what's before you. 
The, the storyline is not how will I be strong enough, smart enough. It is what God will do to you to whom he has promised to never leave or forsake. God is always the entirety of our hope. He is all of it. He's not the biggest part. He's not the majority. It is God alone, completely the entirety of our hope with nothing else added. Christ alone. And that's how life moves forward. What God will do. Christ in us. So God's people don't buy into and don't fear dead-end storylines. They're all around us. They may look like big storylines that are going somewhere, but the only one that is going somewhere is what God is doing through his son. Every other storyline is a dead end. Don't buy into the storylines of somehow we're going to elect someone who's going to solve our problems. Dead end. We've elected a few people so far. All the problems gone. Don't be fearful of the new storyline that's filling the news every day. AI. Eventually, we're all going to become robotic. They're going to take over the world. I saw the movie. I knew it. <laughs> People get jumpy and worried. It's God's storyline. It's not as though God is, ooh, I didn't know they would come up with AI. How am I going to defeat that? God is the main character of all storyline. Number two, God's encouragement to you is the storyline of God is impervious to failure. Or as we started out, it cannot fail. Just thought I'd throw in a big word <laughs> to let you know I have a thesaurus which I use. This is a central truth we're meant to see throughout Abram's life and Genesis and Scripture until Jesus comes again. God's storyline is impervious to failure. That included when the Son of God is, is hanging on a cross and his enemies thought they had ended it all. That includes when they placed him in the tomb and rolled that stone, and now we're done with him. The storyline of God is impervious to failure because the storyline of God is all about what Jesus will complete. How often does the plan of God in our lives seem to be hanging by a thread? What we see in Scripture, it's hanging by a thread. That's how our life feels, and none of that is ever true. If it's a thread, it's stronger than vibranium or any other marvel material. 
the thread of God, however small it looks, cannot be broken, cannot be snapped, will always hold us. We mess up. People mess up. Stuff happens. Even satanic attacks. And none of it has ever caused even the slightest waver of fear or doubt in the heart and mind of God. And his, his storyline has never been altered ever from what he would do. So, oh, well, it had to have been when Adam and Eve fell and sin came into the world. Oh, no, because we are told of Christ. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. It has always from eternity past being God's plan that his son would be given to save us and that the whole weight of our hope would always be not in we don't mess it up in what Christ has done. There's never been anything else in the heart and mind of God. Without the sovereignty and faithfulness of God, life is rightly scary. There are monsters under the bed. That's why we look to Christ who is faithful and good, who rules over all and has already defeated sin and death and Satan. So you can trust that your events are always leading to God's purpose. Believer, your events are always leading to God's purpose. Thirdly, the third encouragement is that the storyline of God is clear. And that's important because we live in so much uncertainty. We have so many times of uncertainty. And that's true. We're not sure what's happening right now. We're not always sure what should I do next. However, the storyline of God is always clear. The Word of God tells us. How did it all begin? How does it all end? Who comes to make it work? What happens with those who reject the truth of God? What happens to those who bow and submit to Christ? That is all known and clear. The storyline is given to us. Uncertainty, I think, is harder than trouble. We expect trouble. We know it's going to happen. We don't like it. At least in my experience, uncertainty feels harder. You can kind of work through trouble. Uncertainty. That's difficult for us to live in. And the truth is, all the big things are certain. The little, the little uncertain things are all in God's hands. And so when, when you're overwhelmed with uncertainty, you step back. You look at what God has said and to Christ who will fulfill it. And we re-engage, reminded 
that Christ is the one we serve and everything we do in faithfulness leads us to him. And we can live with uncertainty as far as what happens day to day. We can be content in it because God is certain and we're following him. The last point to bring to encourage us is that God's storyline is good. The theme of God's promises were all blessing. God's intention is to bless his people, to make life whole, to give us joy. And so the wisest thing before us is always to keep pressing into what God is doing, being faithful to him, because we know all that he does is good. If we ignore God's storyline... The only result ahead is complete, utter, eternal loss. There's no other option. If we reject God's solution, his answer, his savior, the Lord of all, it's all loss. If we embrace God's storyline, submitting to Christ to believe he is the one who saves us from sin. He is the one who rules over eternity. We will discover that his storyline cannot fail us because the storyline of God leads us to the person of Jesus and life with him. People of God, know what storyline you're in. And if you're not sure where you are, what your storyline is, or you're trying to make it work on yourself, really, if we just look around you, whose storyline is working? Whoever it is, it ends up with sorrow. It ends up with death. It ends up with what we can't control. The only one who can lead us through these things is the only one who's conquered those things. And that is the person of Jesus who is here now, who will respond to you now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to each person to bring confirmation of what is true, what they need to see and believe. May the wondrous goodness of Christ be clear before us. May we see any hindrances, obstacles, questions. They are nothing compared to the glory that is Jesus. Help us to turn to him with full heart, to love and follow him in Jesus' name. Amen.